welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Raquel Gutierrez about their debut book of essays, Brown Neon. Yeah, this was a really sharp collection of essays that contains a number of really fascinating and quite moving meditations on identity, place, and community. Yeah, the range of locations and topics is impressive. It, it moves kind of from the border in Arizona to you know more intimate settings in Los Angeles among queer community. Yeah, and asking us all along the way kind of how we make meaning and how we make community and places where those things kind of enter into a natural but really productive and interesting sort of tension. Yeah, the essays aren't so argumentative. They're more expansive. Yes, and exploratory. It reminds me that something I feel like a bad habit of mine is to always have an argument, kind of be making my point. And I don't always think that's the, the best way to be. Yeah. Well, I think it it offers different opportunities, right? So when you're when you're really wandering in something that has no necessary answer, or like you said, isn't anchored to an argument, you can explore experiences and lives in a different way than you can when you're just writing an argument-based piece. But for me, I, I'm also more of the kind of argument focus. That's just my my particular kind of training, is that it's always about what is the argument, what are the terms? But it is great and really refreshing both to work in that different exploratory mode and certainly, as I hope listeners will agree, to, to read it. Yeah. So let's listen to that interview. Let's do it. We're happy to be speaking with the writer and critic Raquel Gutierrez today. Gutierrez is a recipient of the 2021 Rapkin Prize in Arts Journalism, as well as the 2017 Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writer Grant. Their writing on art and culture has appeared in Art in America, NPR Music, Places Journal, and the Georgia Review, and they're currently faculty for Oregon State University Cascades Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing. They join us to speak about their first book, a collection of essays entitled Brown Neon. The collection follows Gutierrez's peregrinations across time and place, particularly the West and Southwest, from their upbringing in 1990s Los Angeles as a member of post-punk bands and inside of a queer community of color, to their years as an arts administrator in Northern California, as well as their more recent experiences in the borderlands of Arizona and Texas. With an approach that's both intimate and expansive, the book takes on issues of identity, gender, class, ownership, and legacies of violence with complexity, historical perspective, and rapt attention to place. Thanks so much for being here, Raquel. So to get us started off, I was wondering if you could explain the title for the collection a little bit. So that's Brown Neon, and the term appears in one of the essays when you're going to see the border wall prototypes, and you describe yourself standing before a customs official at the border as a quote-unquote brown neon sign. And I really like this description, quote, an aging, aimless, homosexual hipster with attachment issues. So what does it mean to be a brown neon sign? Like, what is that identity? I think it's also a way to untether identity from some 
overdetermined aspects of, you know, when I say I'm a queer person of color, queer Latinx, an adult child of immigrants, you know, all the ways in which an identity gets either burdened or gifted, cursed or blessed, however you see it. So I think it's just a way to talk about identity as relational, contextual, improvisational, and also in some ways generational. So brown neon is also a way to just talk about queerness and brownness and Latinx identity, Latinidad, and all of those complicated histories that hold up those identity categories. It's interesting you say generational, because I thought, you know, there's this really beautiful essay where you write about Jean Cordova and some differences between her generation and yours. I wonder, maybe we could start just telling us a little bit about who Jean Cordova was and what your relationship was with her. Jean Cordova was a, she has called herself a professional lesbian. And so someone who has devoted their political organizing as well as cultural organizing to lesbian liberation at a national level, at a regional level, at a local level. Jean was a writer, a journalist, wrote for the Los Angeles Free Press, for the Lesbian Tide. And to me, she was someone who was a mentor, definitely a parental figure. I think she really took me under her wing to help me develop my voice, both as a writer and as an organizer. So in the book, I go into more intimate details of our relationship Generationally speaking, as a you know, parent, adult, child, generation to generation, someone who is in some ways starving for her approval. You called her Big Papa. Right? Yes, I called her Big Papa and she called me her son. So we had a play on sort of these heavily gendered terms of affection in conventional hetero family terms. And something that comes up in that essay is I think this tension that I found really interesting seems like for Jean, there was a tension between butch identity and trans identity and that she's kind of mourning what she feels is the possible loss of butch identity, that she might be, you know, the last generation in a sense. I was curious just to hear you talk a little bit about that. You don't necessarily come down on either side, but what did she see as the conflict there? Well, I think there was an anxiety about this identity that she had fought so hard to inhabit an identity that for her in her 20s, 30s, 40s was a difficult, contentious identity space. And so to finally come into the 21st century and doing her butch identity with such passion and vigor, and then to see sort of the younger generation expand further on the vocabularies of identity in a way that jumped off from Butch and created, you know, a spectrum of identity that I think people were really more connected to or felt more energized by. And so for me, I also think that Jean's terminal diagnosis, her illness, conflated that anxiety around the end of Butch identity with the end of her own mortality. And so, you know, I just wanted to stress that, you know, while I totally understand where she's coming from. I don't know what it's like to have that anxiety mixed up with uh, knowing that you only have an X amount of time. That's really beautifully put. And I don't think I had quite grasped that particular framing until you'd laid it out for us like that. So thank you. 
As perhaps a bit of a segue, I wanted to talk about the border identity that you navigate in Brown Neon, and your writing really inhabits that connected and disconnected identity that is kind of that Anzalduan borderlands identity between languages, countries, genders, classes, experiences, etc. So I wanted to ask you how that experience enriches or informs your perspective to speak from what can, at least on the outside, seem like a really embattled position of never quite being inside while longing so powerfully to belong. Sure. I think it just comes from always having to occupy and sort of unoccupy certain ontological modes that hinge on having to abandon whatever ethnic cultural connections that I have through my parents and that my parents have also learned that themselves to to abandon, to sort of embrace, you know, American values and ideals as a way to be able to stay here, right? In the sense, it's just like, no, I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not this, I'm this, I'm this and this. And they can perform that as a way to absolve themselves, right? Of their Mexicanness, of their Salvadoranness, but they'll never fully get any sort of American blessing. And so I think anytime you're someone who is, you know, not necessarily a fragmented identity, because I think I'm more concerned with simultaneity. And that's a concept I get from my friend, the artist Beatriz Cortez, who's a mm. Salvadoran artist who's been in Los Angeles for many, many years. For me, simultaneity is more of a way to experience the both and and the neither qualities that you've described. And I know that like Anzaldúa has been sort of this like really powerful sort of philosopher of liminality. The Numestiza consciousness, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. But even, you know, Numestiza consciousness, just like needing to reread that, like in a new sort of mode and a history of that writing versus I think the posthumous work in Light in the Dark that is talking about animism, animism in the sense Mm. that like everything is alive and we're all connected to it. And the border is, is a weeping wound and we're connected to it. We understand that the connections are porphyrated. You know, like in, in your notebook when it's just like the paper's attached, but just one little tug, you can pull it out. Similarly, I think our relations, our ties are just as fragile. The way in which I've written about my relationships, relations, connections, it's trying to heal the pain of that precarity. Could you talk a little bit about Rasquachismo, which seems so central to the positionality of your art, you know, the space from which you make art? And could you also talk about how you see that interfacing with the political dimension of your art and thought? Yeah, so Rasquachismo is this idea that comes from a theory of aesthetics put forth by Chicano scholar and art historian Tomasi Barafrausto, who talks about it as a Chicano sensibility to take what you have discarded and reuse it and repurpose it into something beautiful, something beautifying. You know, when I think of raspachismo, rasquache, lo rasquache, it looks like it could be campy. It looks like it could be kishy. It looks like the bric-a-brac you find at a thrift store. But it's also a way of making do with what you have. When I talk about raspachismo with my students, they've often have come back with like, oh, wow, this is something we totally do at home. And I didn't really understand 
what it was, or I felt bad about it. So in a sense, Arraspachismo is also a way for, I think, Latinos, Latinxes from different sort of generations, but also in terms of degree of migration, you know, people who are born here, as well as people who were born in Mexico or other parts of Latin America who come here. It's a way to talk about how we have to make our resources stretch by any means necessary, but that doesn't mean that those means can't be beautiful. The perfect example I think of is the front yard altar to the Virgin of Guadalupe. You take a discarded bathtub, you paint it blue and white, you stick your beautiful statue inside, and she's enshrined, literally enshrined in this gorgeous porcelain altar. Or, you know, the gardens out of Hill Brothers coffee cans. You know, my students also pointed out the fact that in their sort of social media lives, they see influencers, upcycling influencers, and for them, it's a certain type of co-optation, right? The gentrification of raspachismo. They've, they've told me so. So I think raspachismo is a wonderful way to help us sort of understand how we occupy space and find sort of our way in and out of contentious spaces through our beautifying practices, right? In the sense, like, it becomes so beautiful. Everybody else wants it. They want our beautifying practices or social practices, but they don't want us. It reminds me of some of the political background of assemblage. That work was made, you know, like in the ruins of the Watts riots, you know, going and finding the literal trash and then making it into art. For sure. And I think in Rasquachismo and in my sort of fascination with it is that in some ways we imbue it with a reading practice in the sense that, you know, someone's grandmother isn't going to understand sort of the uh, political implications of their gardening, right? Of their refusal to buy new things. The grandmother's just like, I just want to plant the garden, right? And so, you know, these are tensions that also come up in various conversations around Rasquacha and Rasquachismo and sort of the impulse to romanticize working class artisans. I had a student who pushed back and said, I'm sure that the vendors at Olvera Street wouldn't appreciate having their work, having the things that they sell be referred to as a Rasquache. And I'm just like, you are absolutely correct. It is a tension there that I feel like my next project is about learning, unlearning. I don't know. What does it mean where Rasquachismo becomes sort of this site of like elite articulation of aesthetics or just another inaccessible production of knowledge? You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Raquel Gutierrez, author of Brown Neon. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're pleased to have Joseph Osmondson back with us on the line today. Joseph is the author, most recently, of Virology. And he joins us today with this week's book recommendation. So Joe, what book are you recommending? I'm so excited to be back. I am recommending C. Russell Price's poetry collection. Have you heard of it? No. It's called, Oh, You Thought This Was a Date? (laughs) I'd love the title. Okay. Tell us about it. Russ is a friend of mine, a non-binary poet from the South. It's a book of apocalypse poems. They are about trauma, about the body becoming undone, about relationships becoming undone, about the end of the world. Their previous book was Tonight We Fucked the Trailer Park Out of Each Other. (laughs) And so I think the thing that I love so much about Russ's work and about this new book in particular is the sense of the destruction of the world being both inevitable, but also necessary. That the world as it is, is so traumatic and relentlessly difficult 
that actually the destruction of it is an opportunity to build something new. And I think their poetry does build something new on the page. It is not without humor. It is not without connection, sex and sexuality. There's art in the book. It will make you swing in the way best poetry does between abject horror and tears to howling with laughter. And I think it is exactly the type of poetry, the type of book that we need in a world that seems intent on continuing to destroy itself. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm definitely with that. Is there a particular poem that you like most in that collection? Oh, my God. Let me pull it up. The titles are also funny. Among my favorites, the poem in which the apocalypse doesn't go so terribly. The book has a soundtrack in it that you're invited to listen to as you read through. It is just, I'm I'm looking at it now. I'm looking at the art. I'm looking at the way the different poems look on the page. Some have lines that extend. Some have lines that move down sort of relentlessly quickly. Um, You know, in, in We Hold the Flag and Name the Dead, you know, I'm seeing Millie Vanilli and a tree blooming like a Jeep, like a busted bud. The suicide, the suicide, next ones, decades of corsages and funeral arrangements. It is just a collection of all of the things that it is to actually be a geriatric millennial fag for whom the world has been both joyously queer and relentlessly painful. I love that. I love that mix. Can you give us the title and author one more time? Yes, it is. Oh, you thought this was a date? Apocalypse Poems by C. Russell Price. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Joseph Osmondson, author of Virology. Thanks. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Raquel Gutierrez, author of Brown Neon. You know, I'm more familiar with Rascuachismo as a kind of visual arts aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Do you think when you do your writing, like, is there any of Lo Rascuache that comes to you as a kind of literary aesthetic to work in? I think so. I think, you know, to go off of Kate's mention of assemblage, you know, I often talk about promiscuity, right? About genre promiscuity in the sense that like, what are you doing? What is this book doing? What is this book trying to do? And I'm just like, that's a great question. It's doing a lot in the sense that it has all those sort of performative qualities of disentangling the self, right? The self in the community, this idea of travel writing, the road trip narrative, arts criticism, queer memoir. I think it's a beautiful, delicious, you know, pizza pie, right? But the ingredients are also, you know, taking from other sort of literary traditions, right? In the sense, and I say that because I'm just like, am I taking on, am I speaking to, am I in conversation with, am I contributing to a literature? And for me, I think it's just a convergence, a convergence of all of these ideas. And much like the way in which you can never really have borders, right? You can never really stop people from connecting. You can never really fully police contact zones. I think genre works in that way too for myself in the sense that I think a lot of my favorite books have been sort of messy, messy texts. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your essay on art washing. You write so beautifully about the experience of being a part of an art community and finding your people among these clubs and events and music shows that you went to in your youth. But later you were called out online for being a part 
of an event that took place at a bar on the east side of Los Angeles and these people who are questioning your identity and your and your motives and also kind of making you confront your place in the way that art can contribute to misplacing people from neighborhoods and galleries coming into neighborhoods. So maybe talk a little bit about that piece and how that experience made you reflect on the very complicated role between art and community these days. I think, you know, that essay starts out with sort of the novelty of being called out. I think if you are a very online person, you have seen your fair share or may have been the object or may have been sort of the caller in these really highly charged exchanges, energy transfers, and they're often sort of complicated by this idea that things are very clear and people will have uh, X, Y, and Z ideas about just like, we hate nuance or nuance is just sort of the enemy. And I get all of that. And I absolutely get all of that. But in that instance, you know, there was a call out, an exhibit, very organically produced, very artist driven art space, BBQ Los Angeles, artists who were invited to present their work had decided in, in respect to the community to pull out their work and not show it. And I totally understand, you know, people taking the positions that they do. And what I'm really grateful for is just that it generates conversation. It generates new modes of sort of like understanding, but it also makes clear just how valuable space is and just how the encroachment of developers and the way that people are either getting pushed, whichever direction is available. Are they getting pushed further south? Are they getting pushed further east over the mountains, into the mountains, into the desert? out of California in general. And so, I don't know, it's one of those things that it just, for me, feels like, you know, snake eating its tail. There is no answer, no response. And it's wild. I mean, I go into it into the essay, but I I don't have a kind of dry or maybe a satisfying enough answer. But I guess, I mean, well, where does that, maybe just in terms of personal action, you go to see this guy who's doing like border wall as land art, You know, to me, like that's really bad taste. And that is like a form of art washing or whatever that I find. Or you can say aspects of Marfa are like very art washed, you know, or have priced people out of this small town in Texas. It's insane. But in terms of, you know, a homegrown community effort in a small, you know, part of LA where it's all artists, like, I mean, just in terms of participation, because you're asked, I'm sure, to participate in a lot of different things. Do you just say yes to everything? Or, you know, do you weigh each situation, like exactly the particular details of it? Like, how do you know what you should do or what you don't want to do? I think about all the ways in which, you know, we're all conscripted into, I mean, all museums are, you can argue that all museums launder money. I don't know. You know, (laughs) you can argue that like, that's a way for speculators to kind of come in and they do. And that's the thing. That's what I mean by the snake eating its own tail. Like we can go in the, in these circles and we could choose maybe not to just like, if it really bothers us, just not to do art and not write and not express ourselves and not be some sort of creator of of lies that tells the truth about the world. I don't know. But then at the same time, you're a critic and you write so much about art. And I wonder, you just take in some of these contradictions or enmeshments. Are they just kind of recognize them and fold that into the pieces you write or something that you do really well is it doesn't seem like anything hinges on one point. Like it's just flooded with different perspectives, all your essays. Is that something that you are purposely trying to 
practice in your writing or, or in your life, like not trying to like grab onto one point and having one stance because there is so much fluidity. Is that ever a problem? Are people often pushing you to like land a little harder on one side? No, no one's pushing me to land on any one side in more pronounced ways. I think I'm a big fan of social promiscuity, you know, and genre promiscuity. And so there are some things that just make sense to me in the moment as it's revealing itself to me. And there's other things that I think are already so commented upon in these like sort of conventionally critical modalities. And I think if I want to be part of those conversations I have to find maybe 179 other degrees or other doors from which to enter into. I had a sense reading this, it does move around a lot in time, but it kind of bookended by a certain time, right? Like it's this feels like a certain period in your life that had some melancholy. And maybe a lot of that was reaction to the political climate, but you were also, you know, you referenced this love affair that's kind of here and there. And then we don't quite know where that leaves off. I wondered when you were done writing the book, did you look back at this period that you had covered and feel like, okay, this chapter in your life had ended? Or do you still feel very much in the midst of what you were writing about. I mean, because politically, obviously things perhaps aren't that different, but personally, maybe they've changed. I'm, I'm curious to hear. Well, I think, yes. Yeah, so I feel like the chapters has definitely come to a close or in, in the sense that they do with loss, right? When you lose so much, it's like, okay, well, that's no longer in my life or you know, these people have passed on and they're no longer in my life and I have to figure out how to create myself in their absence, how to hold hold them, their memory in in my life, you know, try to struggle to seize their their words, right? And also being struck by the fact that, uh, you know, Jean Cordova really just thought Hillary Clinton was going to be in office, right? Like she would die and things would be okay because Clinton, you know, Clinton would be off in office and feel like her own sort of a swan song, right? In the sense that like she did all of this uh, life's work and, you know, she passes, but she'll be okay because there'll, there'll be a woman in, in the Oval Office. Whereas like you have an administration, you know, the 45 administration and trying to do that while nursing grief, nursing heartbreak, you know, it's really hard to muster any sort of optimism. And even after the fact, right, just like living in in, uh, Southern Arizona, you know, I I had to go get fingerprints to work in an elementary school to teach poetry workshops at elementary school and I had to get my fingerprints at the gun range. (laughs) So, you know, the fact that these like, you know, sort of cultural, the way that culture articulates itself in my, you know, sort of a border city context also brings me into awareness that, uh, oh man, things are, things could get really hairy really soon. Things are getting pretty hairy, right? I mean, when you have somebody like Chelsea Manning tweeting that queer and trans people should consider arming themselves, you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, no, things are, things are hairy. But how about for you personally right now? Well, I'm also, you know, I'm very optimistic. I I have love in my life. I have a wonderful partner and uh, we have a house where we have a dog. The book is out and everyone I love and respect is, uh, you know, not good feedback. Things are good. I'm just also bad at being an optimist. 
Yeah, I was going to say, where do you where do you take hope in moments that feel particularly hairy? I think it's in younger people, in people who mm-hmm. are uh, different generations, younger generations for myself, who I'm so excited, you know, to to learn from, uh, to read to read their work and to, you know, hear sort of their, their take on the future, you know, artists, right. Visual artists, performers, writers, that's always given me hope. I think it's just when I can't articulate language of optimism, you know, then it's, it comes down to my feelings, right. If I hear a song or hear a poem or see a painting, it's illuminating, right. It's just like, wow, the light just is giving me all kinds of special oceanic feelings. That's really beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that. My pleasure. This is amazing. Thank you. We've been speaking with Raquel Gutierrez, author of Brown Neon. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.